You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to another edition of the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead on all things in North Carolina government and politics. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We've got a good show lined up for you. Colin Campbell of the News and Observer and Ben Brown of the Insider will join us a little bit later. But first, we uh, ventured down to the uh, General Assembly and caught up with the Senate leader, Phil Berger, talking about the budget. We asked him about uh, when they're going to get out of town and some other uh, questions. So we'll jump into that uh, first, and then we'll come back. We'll do a segment uh, touching on Medicaid and some political intrigue. And then, of course, we'll have our headliners of the week. But first, let's go straight to an interview we recorded. It was right before the Senate went into session uh, midday Thursday, and we ca- uh, caught uh, Senator Berger uh, at the legislature. So let's take a listen. And so we are here with Senator Phil Berger, the Senate leader, and uh, obviously we wanted to catch up with uh, Senator Berger about the budget. Uh, Senator Berger, welcome to the Domecast. Right, thanks, Andy. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity. And so we have the news this week of a budget number, uh, some some agreement, roughly a 3% spending increase over, over the previous year, not quite what you wanted, and a compromise there, uh, if you will. It is a compromise number. It's a little bit more than the Senate would like to see the state spend be. But, uh, but it's a number that we've agreed to uh, with the House and the governor. Uh, now begins a process where you try to resolve this, right? Correct. And there's a lot of things hanging out there. What, what are the sort of the pressure points? Where are you focused on trying to make sure that uh, is in the budget the way that you want it? Well, our, our concern obviously is, uh, is the spend itself. And uh, we have a number that, uh, as I said, the, uh, the Senate has agreed to. Uh, kind of the pressure points, I, I think, uh, will, will be the appropriations uh, chairs will now have to reach agreement as to how much of that is spent in education, how much is spent in uh, in health and human services, how much is spent in general government. Uh, they're in the process now of uh, of trying to reach uh, those uh, th- those kinds of uh, target uh, spend agreements. Uh, one of the other uh, issues that will, uh, will will need to be determined is uh, what amount goes to uh, salaries and benefits. Uh, will there be uh, a salary modification? The House and the Senate had uh, different ideas about uh, how that should work. Uh, one of the things that uh, that we have reached agreement on, and it's been an agreement for a while, is that uh, beginning teacher pay uh, is moved uh, to thirty-five thousand uh, dollars, which is uh, among the highest in uh, in the region and uh, helps us with the recruitment of uh, beginning teachers. Uh, but you can't say across the board pay raise as we as we sit here now. Uh, no, I, the the House and the Senate have different differing ideas about mm-hmm. uh, about that. And uh, that will be part of the negotiation. That's part of the discussion yeah. that's uh, taking place as we speak. A big issue has been teacher assistance, and there was some talk of maybe turning it into a block grant type thing and let the schools decide. Where, how firm is the Senate in its belief that 
teachers, more teachers is is better for uh, students than but, teacher assistants. Now, the, the Senate's position is that the thing that we can do uh, to help students achieve at the highest level is to make sure that we have a high-quality teacher in front of every classroom. And uh, we also are satisfied that the data is, uh, is, is very convincing that uh, in grades uh, one, two, and three, and in kindergarten, if you can get the student-teacher ratio uh, down to one to 15, one to 17, that that's an optimal number for one teacher uh, for that number of, uh, of students. And so the Senate budget actually takes that step and uh, moves in that direction. Now, uh, what that means is that back in the um, late 70s, early 80s, when uh, we began using teacher assistance. Uh, the student-teacher ratio in those grades was 1 to 26, 1 to 27, and you had many classes that may have been even larger than that. So our belief is that once you get the ratio down to 1 to 15, 1 to 17, the need for the teacher assistant in those early grades is uh, is diminished substantially. And is that a firm position? Is that one of those that just you will not uh, relent on? Well, that's been the Senate position for several years now, and uh, what we've done is we have uh, moved to reduce the number or the funding for teacher assistance. You know, Andy, one of the interesting things that we found is that over the past several years, we've uh, given school systems a lot of flexibility in how they spend money. So uh, in many respects, a lot of the money that comes is in the nature of a block grant that can be used in certain areas. And what we found is a lot of the money that was being sent to the local systems uh, that uh, was in the category of teacher assistant, but they had the flexibility to use, many of those systems were taking that teacher assistant money and hiring teachers with it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we, we think a lot of the systems see it that way as well, uh, but there are some that, uh, that still would, uh, would prefer to have the full funding for teacher assistance. Uh, it's, uh, again, something that we'll continue to be talking about. And so uh, the question, of course, on everybody's mind is, when will this be resolved? And, and, and we, we, you know, we, or obviously we have an, a CR that, that's going to run out. Will we need another CR? Is that pretty? pretty Don't know yet. Uh, if, uh, if, if things start moving, as, uh, as, as I hope they will, uh, we, we have the, uh, the ability, I think, to get things uh, finished by the 31st. I don't know that that's going to happen. Uh, I think um, what we'll see by the first of next week will give us uh, an indication of whether or not adequate progress uh, has been made. And there are, of course, the schools starting up. There's some impacts there. A lot of people just want to know, why is this taking so long? You know, and why why haven't you all figured this out by there, now? There are a lot of folks in this building that are asking the same question. <laughs> and uh, sometimes uh, it uh, just takes a while to, uh, to, to get to a, a specific number or to get to an agreement. Uh, the House and the Senate were very far apart uh, in terms of spending. You know, this year is the first year since Republicans have had the majority that we've not uh, been uh, cornered or, or held, uh, held in as far as uh, our spending is concerned. Basically, the spend number was based on the availability. Because of some of the decisions we've made over the past four years, the availability number was much greater than, uh, than, than anyone really anticipated. So what, uh, what this is, at least as far as uh, I'm concerned, and I think as far as many members of the General Assembly uh, are concerned, is this is kind of a test. Uh, are we going to have the discipline to maintain some control over the growth in government? Or are we, uh, just because we have extra money, going to spend the extra money? 
Uh, I think uh, we, uh, we, we see with the agreement on the spend target uh, at least uh, the beginning of some of that discipline, and uh, that is, uh, that's been a, a huge hurdle, and I think getting over that hurdle uh, should allow other things to take place that, uh, that, that will get us to, uh, to an agreement. And, of course, the governor has been uh, uh, you know, making sounds. He wants certain things. One of the biggest ones is this historic uh, tax credit, uh, historic preservation tax credit. Not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, but not a lot of movement over here on that. Ultimately, where do you see that issue uh, falling out? Well, clearly that'll be one of the things that we're, we're talking about. I, I can tell you that the Senate's position on that has been that uh, those credits were slated to expire. Uh, the, the law said they will expire at, at a certain date. And uh, our belief is that uh, when you tell folks something's going to happen a certain way, then, uh, then you need to, uh, to, to act consistent with that. Otherwise, uh, you, you're just every year having to re-argue and re-decide things that uh, should have been settled. Uh, bonds as well, same, obviously you all have moved a bond package, but that's going to go to the end as well. Yeah, and our position has been that uh, on a bond, once we get the budget, uh, we'll start uh, looking uh, a little more uh, closely at uh, what a bond should look like, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's entirely possible that we'll see a bond package come out of uh, this General Assembly uh, this year. Um, don't know when the vote will take place because uh, remember back when the Democrats were uh, were running things, uh, it was uh, not unusual for them to uh, uh, to to enact borrowing in a way that the voters didn't have a chance to vote on it. Uh, one of the things about this is whatever we do, uh, the commitment is that uh, the people will have the last word on whether or not we actually borrow money or not. And, of course, you have to get through the budget, then adjournment. There's other issues uh, hanging out there, uh, Medicaid uh, being one of them. Uh, some news here at the end of the week, uh, a state audit. We'll maybe explore that uh, at some other point. Um, but what do you think on timing as far as we get through the budget, and then when will you all, not that we don't want you around, but when will you all leave? <laughs> Um, th there are a lot of folks that don't want us around, but uh, we, we certainly understand that. You know the old story, right? Hide your wallet when, uh, when you all are here. So I've, I've actually said that. So, um, <laughs> uh, and I think there, there, there is uh, at least uh, some concern. Traditionally, once the budget is taken care of, uh, it takes a week, two weeks uh, for everything to, to get wound down here. So uh, I, would, uh, I would expect that to be... Uh, a consistent uh, time frame that once we get the budget done, I suspect we'll be around for another couple of weeks. However, there there are some big issues out there. You mentioned Medicaid, and um, it's uh, it's possible that those might hold us up a little bit. But I'm for the first time in uh, in, in in the last four years, I am optimistic that we are close to uh, getting getting a deal on on Medicaid. Well, of course, we will be watching that. Um, Senator Berger, we appreciate your time. We thank you for stopping by the Domecast. Uh, thank you, Andy. And uh, we, of course, will be following all of the uh, latest on the budget and keeping up with that. And we will be back in a minute. And so there you have it, Senator Phil Berger talking about the budget. Uh, of course, really noncommittal on when they're going to be out of town um and and the general uh, flavor of that was 
a lot of uh, wait and see on some key issues, and so we'll uh, stay with those. Uh, but of course, you heard him say there that uh, he really saw this budget process with a surplus in hand as a test of the Republican uh, leadership, really, in being disciplined on spending. And so uh, we'll see, of course, how that plays out as well. Let's take a break, and then we will be back with Colin Campbell and Ben Brown. Have you checked out the newly designed News and Observer this week? You'll see changes that make all of our products more visually appealing while giving you in-depth coverage and new ways of storytelling. Visit new.newsobserver.com to learn more about the new ways for your news day. As a listener to the Domecast, we have a special offer for you. You can receive the News and Observer Digital Edition for only 99 cents for four weeks. This includes unlimited access to NewsObserver.com, mobile, iPad apps, and the print replica e-edition. Just head over to NewsObserver.com, click subscribe at the top of the page, and enter the promo code DOMECAST to receive this special offer. And welcome back to the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead on all things in North Carolina politics and government. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer, joined now by Colin Campbell of the News and Observer and Ben Brown of the Insider. Uh, Ben Brown, uh, you had an interesting week um, towards the end of the week there, I gather, uh, Mm -hmm. midweek, um, catching up with uh, June Atkinson. That's right, yeah. Someone we don't talk about a whole lot on the Domecast, but uh, tell us, bring us up to speed on uh, on really a, a, an interesting uh, development. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of off the cuff. There, there were rumors going around that June Atkinson, state superintendent of public instruction, you know, she's been there for 10 years. Rumors that she was going to step away before the end of her term. Uh, go ahead and say that's not true, according to Atkinson, uh, when I followed up with her. But the the way it was playing out was that, uh, uh, that the rumor mill was playing out was that uh, Representative Trisha Cotham, a fellow Democrat who's expressed interest in that steep seat before was, you know, was that she wanted to run in 2016 if Atkinson decided to step down. So I'd heard about a lunch that they were going to have uh, yesterday. I didn't really know much about it, but I went out to a certain burger joint and saw Atkinson and um, and I asked her, you know, first of all, I wished her a happy birthday because it was her birthday. And I'll, I'll mention something else about that in a minute. But uh, I asked her straight up, you know, hey, there are rumors that, you know, you're not going to run again, rumors that you're going to step away early. She squashed that one right off the bat, uh, said she's absolutely, absolutely going to finish out her term. Uh, and a lot of these questions came up because Atkinson hasn't raised any new money. Uh, the mid-year reports came out without without anything in them, essentially. So what does that mean for the Democrats? Right. She, the, the, the campaign reports really tell a, a story of a candidate not getting ready to, to run for re-election. They do. She, she had a little bit of cash on hand, but, uh, but nothing raised. So uh, for the Dems, you know, who would be able to step in? Well, uh, Trish Cotham back in 2012 said that she would, she would want to run if, if Atkinson decided not to. Uh, Atkinson decided to run again. And uh, at this point, Atkinson remains undecided is what she told me. So I asked uh, Cotham, uh, you know, what are your thoughts at this point? And she kind of repeated that, saying that, you know, she would, uh, uh, I believe she said, the quote was, I would give strong consideration to running in 2016 if Atkinson decided not to run again. She's been very supportive of her. Uh, And and as a matter of fact, the night before, an email went out that was paid for by the Democratic Party, uh, but portrayed as from Representative Trisha Cotham. Uh, basically saying, you know, let's wish June Atkinson a happy birthday. Uh, she has been uh, sort of a, a fearless leader. She's the first female elected to that office in the state. Uh, she described her as, as, as a tireless leader who's, you know, quote unquote, countless achievements, and it just kind of outlined them. 
um, and then ultimately said, you know, um, uh, make a contribution today to the party to help elect more uh, high caliber Democratic leaders. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that came from Cotham and that was a legit email. Wow. So uh, really, the signs of a transition uh, may be may be stress underway there on the Democratic side. It, it's on the radar. Yeah. 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 Very good. Uh, Colin Campbell, let's switch gears a little bit. A uh, big uh, topic at the end of the week, Medicaid, something we talk about a lot. Uh, never seems to get uh, resolved the way people want it, but the signs of a deal uh, coming into focus. Bring us up to speed on that. Yeah, so this is obviously something that's been debated between the House and Senate for uh, several years now, and they've uh, left town before without having a deal on this, without being able to work out the the differences. The The main idea is that they're going to switch from a, a model in which uh, the state is having to pay for every Medicaid patient's, every doctor's visit, every procedure uh, billed per procedure uh, to a more uh, fee-for-service model where uh, you a state pays a certain amount for each uh, patient who receives Medicaid uh, and does that through either a uh, managed care organization that would be sort of a insurance company-run operation or a uh, provider-led entity, which would be a, a group of doctors, a hospital, uh, and the House and the Senate are divided on which of those two it should be that would run this program. Is it going to be insurance companies? Is it going to be doctors and hospitals? Uh, so that's been the divide going into this. Uh, it sounds like they are now close to a deal and Representative Donnie Lambeth told me earlier this week uh, in the House, he's one of their lead negotiators, that uh, he thinks next week, uh, optimistically, he's uh, he's thinking they may have a deal that they've worked out about 85% of the, the big issues. They've got about 15% left to go, uh, the idea being that they're going to come up with sort of a hybrid system where uh, you've got a mixture of these uh, insurance company-led groups and these uh, provider-led groups uh, running the system, uh, and ultimately the, uh, the group that's going to be left out in the dark or at least having to find a new way to, to reinvent themselves is this community care of North Carolina. And there was an audit out about them this week indicating that they've uh, saved uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for the state through their model, which basically uh, they take Medicaid patients and assign them a case manager who's making sure they're going to the doctor regularly, who's keeping tabs on their medications, making sure that you know they're not doing anything that conflicts with other things that they're uh, handling on their, their medical care. Uh, and that's a model that uh, a lot of people point to as really getting the Medicaid cost uh, under wraps. That group under this hybrid plan would be phased out on a statewide contract. These new entities running Medicaid could contract with them on a, a local or regional basis, but they wouldn't be uh, overseeing millions of patients uh, around the state. So that's a big issue to, to talk about. And so what, what if you have an audit that says this group has done, uh, I, I gather, a, a good job of saving, helping to save the state money, what do the lawmakers say they want? Why do they want to phase that out or change that model? Well, um, when I talked to Senator Ralph Heiss uh, yesterday, he's the the guy on the Senate side who's really pushing their plan. He sort of downplayed the savings numbers and said, look, you know, yeah, they've they've done pretty well, but we haven't really kept close tabs on them over the years and how much they're saving. In his mind, they're saving the state less now than they were when they started. So he'd really rather see a model where uh, there's a contract with a group like that, but it's renegotiated every year or two. So you could change the benchmarks and make sure that they're they're constantly upping their game in terms of how much they're containing the uh, cost of Medicaid. Very interesting. Uh, of course, a lot of money spent on Medicaid in the state. Lawmakers uh, really, at the end of the day, 
uh, wants certainty around that budget more than uh, more than than anything else at budget time, I should say. And uh, so that's one of the drivers there is they're looking for certainty. Let's take a break and we will come back with our headliners of the week. Hey there, this is Mike Gamal from Joey's Song. Did you know that it is estimated that up to 50,000 deaths occur annually in the U.S. due to prolonged seizures and sudden unexplained death in epilepsy and other seizure-related causes such as drowning and other accidents? That's why artists like Roseanne Cash, Gary Lewis, and Mark Olson of the Jayhawks, Delamitri, Steve Forbert, The Knack, Nico Case, Matthew Ryan, Crash Test Dummies, and Sam Leonis of the Bodines, and 40 other great artists have donated unique music to Joey's Song, a series of CDs that raise money for epilepsy research and patient services for special needs kids. To find out more, visit us at www.joeysong.org. And welcome back to the Domecast. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer, a segment we call now Headliners of the Week. We ask our panelists. We'll be joined also by Craig Jarvis here in a minute. We ask them to nominate someone, uh, argue a little bit, and then we'll have some fun and and pick a headliner of the week. We give them 45 seconds. We've got a bell. We'll ring the bell. Of course, I haven't been able to ring the bell in a while. Haven't been able to ring that bell. So uh, anyway, let's go with uh, Colin Campbell. Put you on the spot first. Colin Campbell, tell us, who is your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to have to go with the uh, story that uh, put North Carolina in some national headlines over the last week, and that, of course, is fictional presidential candidate Dee's Nuts, uh, who made news this week because public <laughs> policy polling, the pollster <laughs> agency— Hold on a second. Uh, f- uh, fictional? <laughs> this is a re- not a real person? Well— in FEC um, filings, there is a presidential candidate filed named Dee's Nuts. That's D E E Z Nuts, um, and it's basically just a 15-year-old kid in I think Iowa somewhere who did this as a joke. Okay, there are I'll probably start the clock again. Go, okay. go ahead now. Let yeah. So anyway, there's there's about 200 or so of these fake presidential candidates where someone's just filled out a form. Technically, they're on the FEC website, so media, in a lack of other uh, interesting presidential campaign news, has, has done a lot of stories about these. There's a cat running. There's a crawfish running. Uh, but anyway, uh, public policy polling this week decided to do a hypothetical matchup between Donald Trump as the Republican nominee, Hillary Clinton as a Democrat, and independent D's nuts. Uh, and when they asked uh, respondents about that, about 9% uh, said that their preference was going to be D's nuts. So, of 9% course, the, in North Carolina? In North Carolina. Uh, oh. They polled a couple other states, too, but he had the strongest support, I think, in North Carolina. So that ended up making uh, national news, uh, lots of jokes surrounding that. Uh, he had somewhat decent favorability ratings, although apparently about 80% of respondents said they were not sure about these nuts. <laughs> I should have hit the bell a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. if I say it one more time, we're going to get kicked off the News and Observer website. Oh, my goodness. So really, that would be a sign that people don't like Trump or Clinton. Or they're all 12-year-old right. boys. Yeah, okay. <laughs> these, oh, um, hopefully not listeners to the Domecast either. Okay, let's let's go now with uh, Ben Brown. Uh, thank you for that, Colin. Ben Brown of the Insider. Tell us who is your headliner of the week? Yeah, it's a tough one to follow, but I'm going to go with Julia Howard. Uh, you know, last week I picked Representative Marilyn Avila on the same topic, this unemployment insurance bill for a quote that Avila had in support of a provision in the bill to require people on unemployment 
to make at least five job contacts per week, up from two. Uh, this kept getting attacked as a burden, and separately there was a proposal to make it three contacts to sync up with federal policy, but in the end it was Julia Howard who was the point person who kind of brought the bill home at five contacts. Uh, plenty of coverage on the NNO and at the Insider if this sounds alien, but uh, Julia Howard. Julia Howard on the unemployment, so uh, the unemployed have to work a little bit harder. That's the way it's looking. As the way, as the way that bill goes. Okay, so Julia Howard now in the hat. And let's go now to Craig Jarvis joining us uh, for the first time on this week's Domecast. Thank you. Glad yeah. to be here, as always. Uh, fresh off of a uh, uh, seeing... Well, uh, tell us, uh, who is your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to go with somebody that we don't see here that often, or we haven't for quite a while anyway, U.S. Senator Richard Burr. And, uh, of course, he's been in the news uh, mainly for his lack of uh, Democratic opponents who are who are firmly committed um, we uh, we asked him uh, he he was here to give a little speech be- about uh, security issues before a dinner uh, club and uh, we asked him beforehand what he thought about the lack of candidates and he said well of course you know it's because I'm doing a good job also he's got a lot of bipartisan support you can't win statewide race here without it but he said mainly it's gotten too expensive for somebody like a lesser known candidate to think they're going to get better name recognition and promote their future chances uh, by throwing their name in the hat it's uh, it's just too expensive these days. Ultimately, money's going to line up behind somebody. So Richard Burr, and, and yes, we have uh, spent a lot of time talking about the other side of that race. Uh, he was in Raleigh. Uh, uh, what was the crowd like there? It was uh, 150 people. Uh, they were uh, interested in him. They had very intelligent questions for him. And, uh, and he did, I thought he quitted himself well. He's been in, you know, in Congress for a long time now. And he, he knows what's going on up there. He's the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So he has a special, uh, special insight into what the topic was. Well, uh, of course, Richard Burr will be coming uh, to a television screen near you uh, soon at some point in the in the year 2016, right? And so let's go ahead and we'll we'll since we we got to hear from him and see him in uh, uh, Raleigh this week, we'll go ahead and say that Richard Burr is the headliner of the week, and we'll uh, grab a little bit uh, from him talking about uh, running for office. And uh, as we head out, we thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. But understand one thing, that uh, I won't engage in the, in the Senate re-election until we adjourn next year, whether that's August or, or October. Uh, I'll do all the things that I need to to financially prepare and to structurally put a campaign in place, but uh, you won't find me being a candidate until that day I leave Washington. And I think that's, uh, I, I, I think that's how we, we're supposed to do our jobs. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.